Amen. Today, we turn in God's word to the gospel according to John, the gospel that John gives us, John the Apostle, to John chapter 11, beginning at verse 33, in the midst of the account of the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. We'll return to this larger passage in a couple weeks on November the 20th as well. But today, picking up at verse 33 and reading through verse 44. And then we're also going to turn to John's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. Hear now God's word. When Jesus saw her, her being Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha of Bethany and Lazarus of Bethany, when Jesus saw her, the sister of the deceased, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he, Jesus, was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to Jesus, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out in his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And then to John's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning at verse 25, in the midst of Jesus' testimony and conversation about the clarity of his identity as the Son of Man, the Son of God. Amen, amen, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. 
and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. In his classic Christian men's book from several decades ago, the writer, businessman, leader named Patrick Morley in The Man in the Mirror, that book, he says that when he became very busy and successful, all kinds of people were after him for his time, his money, his attention. All kinds of people were supposedly his friends for different business relationships, different this, that, and the other reasons. And Morley said he came to a point at midlife where he realized he needed to prioritize everything based on who will do something very specific at a very specific moment or event. Now, Morley said, I I realized, and my wife alongside me came to realize, that we needed to prioritize everything, you know, how we navigate through the day, based on this with relationship to other people. What would that be? Morley said, the key is to prioritize everything based on who will cry, who will actually cry at your funeral. In other words, who actually, for real, loves you? Not just using you, not just likes the fact that you're around for their purposes, but who will actually cry at your death? For whom are you lastingly significant. Who will cry when I die? That's the name of our sermon for today. And I have good news in advance for you. There is someone who made you, who died to save you, who fills that role. You really need to fill in all the blanks with him. So we're going to be talking about Jesus, but also today, and you can see it's mapped out in the sermon notes if you're following along with the bulletin or online if you're watching uh, the the broadcast here. Uh, First of all, we're going to talk about the relationship between then and when. What I mean by that? I mean the relationship between back then, okay, I'll get into what back then is, and when, looking ahead, which of course I've already told you that's about when you die. Newsflash, you're going to die, I'm going to die, okay, we're all going to die. So, but there is a relationship between then and when. And, And what is that relationship? Then and when are what? What would you say? Unrelated? Vaguely connected? Perhaps in some cases? No, no. Then and when are inseparable. Then and when are inseparable. Now, now the, 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 the message that then can be inseparable for when is very good news because the then we're about to talk about is the then of Jesus' coming. 
his first coming. So we're also, though, and you can see I have it mapped out for you when you scan through the notes, the second part of where we're going with this is my now. In other words, what I do now, what I'm doing right now with my time, my heart, my money, my efforts, my now and my when, when I die, okay, are also inseparable. Okay, they're inseparable too. <laughs> what you're doing right now is key and a key indicator of your eternal destination and existence. Okay? His then plus my now going all the way to when. That's our story for today. Okay? Uh, they're all inseparable. So first of all, his then. We looked at, and we're going to focus primarily on, I've just kind of broken in the middle of John chapter 11. Like I said, I hope to come back to that in a couple of weeks. It's the seventh and pivotal of the seven signs leading to the book of glory. In other words, you, you really need to know what happens with Lazarus and Jesus at the tomb to understand what's going to unfold in the story of Holy Week and Easter. Okay? So we'll come back to it, maybe dig in a little bit more, God willing, in a couple of weeks. But, but his then, let's look at his then where we picked up today in the middle of the story and in the middle of John chapter 11. First of all, Emmanuel's tears. We're going to talk about Emmanuel's tears, the Lamb's wrath. Okay? We're going to talk about Emmanuel's tears, the Lamb's wrath. And ultimately, we're going to turn to Christ's cry. Okay, so Emmanuel's tears. Jesus weeps. You know that's one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Actually, there's a verse in Thessalonians that in the Greek is shorter, but in the English, Jesus wept is the shortest, so most people will tell you that's the shortest in the Bible. Actually, give thanks in, in 1 Thessalonians is shorter in the Greek, but it's pretty short, right? Jesus wept. And that's a verse that a three-year-old can memorize. That's a verse that hopefully a 33-year-old or an 83-year-old can memorize or remember. If you don't remember anything else from the Bible, remember this. What is it? Jesus did what? Jesus wept. Okay. So how does Jesus weep? Well, he could weep sympathetically for us. Oh, those poor pitiful folks. You know, they're fallen. You know, I, I created them and they've really gotten themselves into a mess. I feel sorry for them. And that would be good, right? That would be, at least he's not like, you know, major league upset with us, but that would be called sympathy. Is Jesus merely, he certainly is sympathetic, is Jesus merely sympathetic? No, if he's merely sympathetic, I'm in, I'm in trouble. I'm in eternal trouble. <laughs> so Jesus is not just sympathetic, he's empathetic, okay? So this should help you fill in the blank. Jesus weeps what with us? Jesus weeps with us. He weeps with us. Not just for us, not just about us. He weeps with you. When you and I go through our hardest times, when we face death, when Patty Mullen and others are, are dealing with grief that's overwhelming, we, we need to know this good news. Jesus weeps, not simply for us, but 
with us. And, and we know this specifically from John 11, in the face of death. In this case, in the face of Lazarus's death. And so Jesus leads us to follow what his scripture teaches us. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, for instance, Paul commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. See, in, in the Christian faith, we're not just called call to say, well, I'm just kind of keeping up with what's going on with you guys. And I'll kind of pray about it. You know, it's kind of random prayers, but I'll throw your name in, I guess. No, 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 no. We're called to love one another in the same way Jesus loves us. And that commands us into not simply sympathy, but also empathy, right? So we are commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice with them, right? And to weep with those who weep. Weep with them. To be a Christian means to be with others. And there are great times and there are hard times and to be one heart with them. Okay? That is the Christian faith and Jesus leads us in that. So, Emmanuel's tears, Jesus weeps with us. And, you know, that might, that's a nice devotional at this point. But now let's get a little more deep. And we're going to talk about the Lamb's wrath. The Lamb's wrath. Now, remember now, John's gospel is written in Koine Greek. And John's Greek, both linguistically and theologically, is very rich. You know, when you're reading in John, when you're reading in the writer of Hebrews, um, and, and Luke to a certain extent, you're reading at the higher level of the Greek that's in the New Testament. And, but in the, in, the, in the Greek of the New Testament in which John is, is using, he, he uses a couple verbs that are from a root, embrimaiomai. Um, and, and that is a verb, and he uses forms of this verb, in Masato in John 11.33, and again in John 11.38, he uses forms of this verb, and the picture of this verb is the flared nostril of serious anger, rage, and, and, and not simply outrage, but also enrage, because that's the M in that Greek, okay? This is, this is within him, going on in him. And John double underlines this by saying it's going on in his spirit. Um, so Jesus is not simply deeply troubled. That's the standard polite translation. Jesus is enraged, which, of course, begs the question. There's all kind of articles written on this, all kind of speculation about what is Jesus so enraged at? Where is his rage directed? Where is his rage like a warrior? Because the image here is of a war horse or a warrior who's going to battle against a serious enemy. That, that's the image of this, uh, of this language. Remember now, Jesus is not simply the lamb. He's also the what? Remember in Revelation, he is the, come on. Dean just talked about it. He's the lion, right? That's what the Narnia is talking about. Jesus is the lamb and he's the lion. So toward what is the wrath of the lamb who is also the lion directed? Well, I'm going to turn to um, excellent summary by B.B. Warfield, great reformed theologian from the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, who wrote a, a really, taught at Princeton, wrote a really interesting uh, work called The Emotional Life of Our Lord, B.B. Warfield. 
And in looking at this passage, Warfield quotes heavily from John Calvin. John Calvin, an excellent exegete who totally gets that we're talking about Jesus being in rage. The question is, toward what is this rage within Jesus directed? Warfield says that Jesus' exasperation and wrath are against the evil of something very specific. What are you going to do? What are you going to do with that blank there in the notes? That has a, to use Calvin's term, has a violent tyranny over us, over you. And it's also, Jesus' rage is also against someone, a very specific someone. Okay, here are the answers. Jesus' exasperation and wrath are against the evil of death. The evil of death, the outrage of death in our fallen world. This is not what the Creator wants. This is not God's good pleasure. So Jesus is enraged, as Warfield says, against the evil of death, and as Calvin calls it, it's violent tyranny over us. We live in the fear of death, we die subject to death. And then also against Satan. Satan, who, as Warfield says, has the power of death for now, temporarily, and uses it and manipulates death and sin, sin and the, and the sting of sin, which is death, um, but that Jesus has come into the world. This is what happened then. Jesus came into the world to destroy, utterly to defeat Satan and the power of death. So, Warfield, picking up on Calvin's uh, commentary on this passage, says, Jesus advances to the tomb, to Lazarus's tomb, again, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict with death and with Satan, who's manipulating death. In taking on the power of sin and Satan, in other words, death, to free Jesus' people, Jesus is not simply deeply troubled. He's enraged, and he's going to war. You have to understand that. I don't know about you, but I'm extremely thankful that Jesus went to war against Satan and death. Are you? See, he, he's telling you what's going to happen at the cross and thereafter in, in what's going on in John 11. But now let's go on from Emmanuel's tears and the Lamb's wrath to third. Christ cry. Christ cry. What did Jesus do with a loud voice? Notice he wept. Okay, that's the language back earlier. But what does he, when, when do we actually get a cry from Jesus? Well, it's when he cries out, right? It's his call. It's his loud call. His defiant, his defiant warrior call, all right, of, of his own to life. What did Jesus do with a loud voice? He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Which then points me to my now. Jesus, now we're going to go over to John chapter 5. Jesus says, an hour is coming, which is always this big issue in John's gospel. When is the hour of the Son of Man going to be? And every, okay, it's now. Okay? Jesus says, the kingdom is here. I mean, I, I've arrived. <laughs> it's flat on. Okay? The, the deal is on now. The conflict is on, and the potential triumph and life for you is on. An hour is coming, and is what? When the dead will hear the voice of God's Son, and those who hear will what? It's now. It's now here. 
An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the Son of God's voice and those who hear will live. And this means live now in a new life, in a born-again life that bridges into eternity. You're already in the age to come when you believe in Jesus. That's actually the language that's used there. You know, zoane, ionion, it's the, the life of the age to come. And he, Jesus says, it's already broken in. Hermann Ritterbos, another great theologian, New Testament theologian uh, from the early, earlier 20th century, uh, Dutch theologian, New Testament theologian, in his magisterial a gospel, the Gospel of John, a theological commentary says this. Jesus' words in John 5, 25 through 29 constitute perhaps, this is in Ritterboss's words, the most powerful statement in all of John's gospel about Jesus' messianic affirmation. In other words, he's telling you flat out who he is. He's claiming it at that moment. And he's telling you he's the Son of God and that he's also the Son of Man prophesied in Psalm 2, etc., etc., and specifically in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man who comes to bring judgment, the final judgment, the final pivot in all of history, and also the one who brings forth the resurrection to life or to judgment that is prophesied in Daniel chapter 12. Jesus just told you all those things with his statement that you read in John 5, 25 through 29, which brings you and me to my now, to your now. Where are you with this Jesus? My now, my response to Jesus' call. Because you have to understand this, Jesus is talking about two different times, but they are also totally interrelated. 525, John 525 is talking about everyone's response when they live right now on earth. And Jesus says, a time is coming and is now here when the dead. Is he talking about people in the tomb there? No, no, no. He's going to get to that in 5, 28, and 29. Right now he's talking about people who are spiritually dead in sin. And that means everybody on earth until you're born again in Jesus. So Jesus says, the time is now. I mean, flat out now. When those who hear my voice will rise and live. In other words, the spiritual resurrection, the new birth that happens when we believe in Jesus. That's 525. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Yeah, right out now. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, even to see it, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3. Here it is. Where are you? Are you alive in Jesus? Have you been raised to new life in him? He's calling all who will receive him now. 525, John 525. Are you alive in Jesus? Are you living the same old, same old on your own power? But then also in 528 and 29, Jesus is talking about the final judgment. The Son of Man will come again to judge the living and the dead. Remember? That's flat out on in 529. These two things are inseparable. As we said last week in last week's sermon in um, grace, gratitude, and glory. I need to know three things to live and die in the blessed comfort of belonging to Jesus. We looked at the Heidelberg Catechism, remember the way it's structured, and answer number two and said, I need to know these three things. Number one, my guilt. Number two, God's grace. And don't forget this because we aren't serious about number one and two unless we see real fruit going on in number three, my gratitude.
my guilt, God's grace, my gratitude. If there's no gratitude going on, if there's no fruit there, as John the Baptist says, and then as Jesus says, you know, if you've got people who are claiming to believe in God, if you've got people who are claiming to be Christians, but their worship, their giving, their serving, their witness is not alive with fruitfulness, they're dead. They've never been raised in the first place. 525 didn't happen. They didn't get up out of their death in sin. Which I love stewardship season because it basically is, are we saved by what we do? No, absolutely not. But what we do responds to our salvation and God's grace in us. So, you know, you pretty much have this opportunity every year to come to terms with, what is my worship like? Am I on fire for the Lord? Is he the first thing every week for me? Is he the first thing every day for me? Am I on fire for the Lord? What's my giving like? Do I put him first? Do I love him? I mean, do, do I actually love the Lord and love his mission? What's my serving like? Well, if it's convenient, I'll do a couple things. No, no, no. Are you alive or dead? Is there fruit there or not? This stewardship season reminds us and gives us this call again to where, are, where am I in my now? Because, by the way, if you're interested at all in eternity and the when, when I die, Jesus is calling the dead now. And if you're kind of, well, I'm kind of half dead, half alive, it doesn't work that way, okay? <laughs> you're either all in or you're all out. Get up! Worship, give, serve, bring forth your pledges and trust in the Lord and respond to his grace alive in you. This is not what you do. This is him doing it in you. Yield to him and be born anew in the power of his Holy Spirit. Christ's call is not divided. It's not one way one year and one way the next. It's not one way right now and then it'll be different at the judgment. No, no, no. His call is totally one. Christ is undivided. His call is undivided. How about you? Do you have a divided heart or are you in with the Lord? In the name of Jesus, I am inviting you by his call to come to him. Arise. Arise to life in him and worship and give and serve. And don't tell me, well, I'm not sure about tomorrow. Tomorrow belongs to him. Eternity belongs to him. Believe in him. Christ's call, undivided. It was undivided in those that we celebrated today in the call to the church triumphant. And I think especially today about dear Adelaide and about the way, you know, she just had a heart for the Lord and a heart for people. Look, anybody who ever visited this church, I've just heard hundreds of stories about people who visit this church or came to this church. And who's the first one to go over and love on them and pay attention to them instead of talking to her best friend or being worried about her thing? It's Adelaide, right? In other words, she was selfless in her witness and her love to others on behalf of the Lord in this church. I pray, as Adelaide has gone to the church triumphant, that God might give us some more Adelaides in this church. I think about Bruce Leopold, came to faith so late in life and came to this church so late in life. But you know what? He was a beneficial, self-giving steward of the Lord. What do you need, Martin? Does the church need anything? Does the youth ministry need something? What, tell me what I can give. Where are you? And I think about... Peggy. Peggy. I mean, she would have been down at the packing thing today. She would have been in every, everything that we did, she was willing to serve. In fact, Peggy, at some point, would start showing up even half a day early for choir practice, which is awesome, right? Because she just loved to be in the Lord's house and to serve. What a model for you and for me. I pray 
that you will answer and I will answer the call and to know exactly who will cry when I die and call me into glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.